if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, you can't teach that old dog new tricks and um, old habits. They, uh, they die hard. Uh, you know, they say that uh, men are a walking time capsule. They say that we are, we are basically frozen in time and that, that every man... You know, what the style that they had, the haircut they had when they were in their 20s and 30s, basically when they're at the, the peak of, of life, that's the one that they're going to hold on to for the rest of their days. And, and that's actually been said about me. This shirt is about 15 years old, and it has been reliable. It has stood the test of time. There are no holes. It is unfaded. It is looking good, right? My wife might differ uh, with that opinion. Uh, you know, but the thing is, the older I get, the less and less that I care about what people think. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. So men, hang on to that style. You know, there are some things in life that uh, are good to hold on to. Others, though, you know, they, they do need to be sent to the pile for the yard sale. But when it comes to our relationship with Christ, those who have placed their trust in Jesus, it is so important for us that we hold every idea and every habit and every tradition that we may have up to the gospel of Jesus and see whether or not this is something that should be held on to or whether or not we should get rid of this. Here in Acts 18 we see three different scenarios where people are caught between what is old and what is new. And we're going to see in some cases that it's perfectly good to hold on to the old. But in others, it is critically important that we let go. For everything, though, we must hold it up to the light of the gospel and let that gospel shine on it and see whether or not this is, this is good. What I hope that we'll walk away with this morning is this conviction that the gospel needs to transform. It needs to mark every aspect of our lives. And so let's look at three different scenarios. First up is Paul himself. And this is in Acts 18, verse 18. And it says this, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers, that's, that's uh, Silas, Timothy, set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Okay, we'll pause there for a moment. So, so Paul has been on this second missionary journey, and he has visited places like Derby, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, remember Athens, he was in Corinth, and after seeing God do some powerful things, it's time for him to return back home to the church that sent him. And so he sets his sights on returning back, back to Syria, and he uh, parts ways with, with Silas and with, with Timothy, and he sets sail for that church in Antioch. And he takes his new good friends with him. He takes Priscilla. He takes Aquila, those who had been kicked out of Italy and were, had set up shop in Corinth for a while, their tent-making business. Now they're going with him. But in the port city of Sencrae, it's across the Aegean, we discover that he decided 
to take care of some business, and uh, he gets a trim. Now, uh, haircuts are not something that I enjoy. I don't enjoy sitting in the uncomfortable chair. I don't enjoy uh, the mirrors all around me. I feel like I'm this weird reverse fishbowl. I'm looking at myself from all these different angles. I, I don't enjoy, there's a guy who's sitting directly across from me, and he's facing my direction just five feet away, and he's doing his best not to make eye contact with me, and I don't blame him. I don't want to look at him either, because this is really awkward having someone do this thing, and then I got to put on this weird polyester robe. And I think that, that robe is actually kind of like the amusement park. This is, this is the dream for hair. That one day they will liberate themselves from my scalp and they will fall upon this, this incredibly slick slide and they will go sailing down onto the floor until they're finally swept up into the bin. And the ones who don't make it I think that they're a little, they're, they're holding a grudge because they seem to attack my body and they're itching my neck and my back and it's just so irritating until finally I let them go down the shower drain. Goodbye. I don't like haircuts. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know if Paul was there with me, but I do know that the reason for this haircut is a little bit different than your run-of-the-mill trim. The end of verse 18 says he was under a vow. And it's very, very possible that this vow was a Nazarite vow. Those are the vows that actually, they, they have some aspect about hair care in this Nazarite vow. Old Jewish custom, showing devotion, showing appreciation, showing gratitude to God, you take this vow, this Nazarite vow. So if you went to Sunday school, or if you've been in church a long time, or you've read some of the Old Testament, you might remember that there was a wife of a man named Manoah. She couldn't have any children. And an angel visits her and tells her she is going to have a child. She's going to have a son, in fact. And this son is to be dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. And as a Nazarite, he's not to drink any alcohol, and no razor is to touch his head. His name was Samson, remember? You might also remember that his story, it takes this really negative turn when he gets that haircut. Now, there were Nazarenes for life, and there were those who took a Nazarite vow for a period of time. We've got to go all the way back to number six, and it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, of the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. He shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. More grape stuff here. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Then it says this. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall set the locks of hair of his head. He shall let the locks of hair of hair of his head grow long. So it is likely that Paul took a Nazarite vow probably as a way just of giving thanks to God. Had he been through some things? Oh, he had been through some big things. Beaten with rods in Philippi, and yet 
lived to tell the tale. He comes to Athens. He suffers this, this, this mockery from the philosophers there. He goes on his way. He goes to Corinth. He's in distress there. God comforts him in some neat ways through the arrival of Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and Timothy showed up. And then there are people who start coming to faith in Christ. The head of the synagogue comes to faith in Christ and all of his family. Had God done, done things? Incredible things. And Paul here seems to be just saying, God, thank you. Here is how I show my, my gratitude, my appreciation for what you have done. You've accomplished great, great things. And you know, this Nazarite vow, it's probably the reason for what he does next. After he gets this trim... Paul arrives in Ephesus, and he takes his leave of Priscilla and Aquila, and he finds himself, where else? In the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews. That's no surprise to us. Apparently, those in the, in the synagogue this time, though, they are eating it up. They love what Paul has to say. They want him to stay. Look at verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer period... He declined. That's a little strange. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. What's the deal, Paul? We, we get it why you left Athens. They're laughing at you. They're stuck in this heady theologi- uh, philosophical thinking. Okay, you move on and you move on to those who will listen. But here, they want to listen. They're not rejecting you. They, they want you to stay, Paul. Why are you leaving? What's the rush? Well, to fulfill a Nazarite vow, there are very detailed instructions for what you must do as you are pulling out of this Nazarite vow, the most significant of which was the requirement to go take the hair that you had cut and present it to the temple in Jerusalem within 30 days' time. Now, that's according to the Jewish historian Josephus. This is the way it's done. you got to get that hair to the temple. Now, some of you are thinking, <laughs> what do you mean Paul is going back to Jerusalem? I, I, I read ahead a little bit, and when he gets back to Syria, it doesn't say anything about him going to to, to, to Jerusalem. So, Jared, I think you're all wet. I think this is all wrong. I don't think this Nazarite vow thing is the reason at all. Well, here's the thing. Verse 22 says this. When he landed in Caesarea, which is the port city there in Syria, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. This up and down is the key here. Because you see, to land in Syria and to go up anywhere is only to go to one place. It's to go up to Mount Zion where the city of Jerusalem sits. That's what going up is. Down is anywhere away from Jerusalem. You know, we like to think of going north as, as, as up, but that's not the way they thought back then. In fact, uh, Antioch, where, where he was going to be heading next, 
was north of Jerusalem. But what does it say? He went down to Antioch. And so this is where it starts to all come together here. It looks as if the reason that Paul left the Ephesians, the, the people in Ephesus, in such a hurry is because he wanted to get back to the temple in Jerusalem to fulfill this Nazarite vow to the Lord. Remember, he told us he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. No one does the Jewish thing like Paul does the Jewish thing. He was committed to doing it. That's what that was his whole life. His whole, his whole adult life had been this. Now he's a Christian. Now he's going out and, and, and preaching Christ everywhere. But this is, this is part of who he was. It was ingrained in him. But when I look at this as someone who is not Jewish, someone who is a Christian, who has no connection to these traditions, I go, Paul, is this, was this a bad move? I think you made a bad move here. Holding on to this old tradition, is that important enough to sacrifice this time you have, this precious time with these, these people in Ephesus who you're sharing the good news of Jesus with and they want you to stay and you just go, no, sorry, I gotta, I gotta go. Maybe I'll see you later if the Lord wills. Was Paul making a mistake here? I think it's possible. It's possible he was making a mistake if what he was thinking in his mind was this is all about keeping tradition. If this is so important that I keep tradition over and above what Christ has commanded me to do, to go be a witness, then I think we've got a problem here. You see, in Christ, he had been set free from those old traditions. At the same time, he's now bound to the things that his king has called him to. Go be a witness. Preach the gospel to all nations. So if this is just about tradition, I'd have to say, Paul, I think you missed the mark. But you know, I don't think this is about tradition here. Not merely tradition for tradition's sake. I think this is about Paul genuinely giving Glory to God. You know, it's the heart that matters, isn't it? It's the heart that matters. If someone showed up here to Bethany, they start, we're doing, Corey's up here leading worship, and they start, they start raising their hands, something that I don't do very often. It's not, it's not who I am. And, and they start raising their hands. Maybe they even get down on their knees, and we look at them and we say, you know what, praise God, they're, they're, they're worshiping. You know, we trust that it's from a, a, a heart that truly desires to worship God. But then if they turn to the person sitting next to them and they say, what, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? You're not raising your hands. You're not on your knees. You're not singing loudly. You aren't doing it like I'm doing it. What's wrong with you? I'm worshiping. You're, you don't seem to know how to worship. And we would go, wait a second here. Something doesn't seem quite right. We'd say, we'd start to say, you know what? I'm not sure that that your heart is in the right place here? Are, are you raising your hands? Are you getting down on your knees? Because, because you genuine, you're just, you're just crying out to God. God, here I am. I love you. I need you. This is all of me. This is all I have. If that's, that, that's what's going on, then great. If you're down on your knees and you're saying, God, I just, I have to humbly come before you. I got nothing. I just, I, I'm weak. I've sinned this week. I, I, I bow before my king. We would go, yes, 
That is exactly right. But if this is all about just going through motions and keeping up with whatever tradition you were brought up with or, or leading other people to see something, maybe an outward thing that you're doing so that they think that your heart is right when you know your heart isn't right, then that is a problem. Your heart's not in the right place. It's, it's what's in the heart that, that matters. You know, Proverbs 21 tells us every way of a man is, is right in, in his own eyes. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Everything I do, yeah, I, 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 make, I'm, I, I merge in traffic this way. I put my signal on. I do it exactly the, the right way. Everyone should do that. If everyone just did it exactly the way that I did it, the world would be a better place. We'd all be safer. We'd all be calmer. We wouldn't get upset. If everyone did whatever just like me, it's, it's all right in my own eyes because I have some logic that leads me to do what it is that I do. Maybe the case is for you as well. The Bible says so. But it says the Lord weighs the heart. He weighs it. This is, this is what he wants to see. You could do all sorts of things that make you look right and not be right at all. Going through the routine for the sake of tradition isn't what God cares about. It's the heart behind the action he's looking at. So if Paul was going through these motions out of a heart that truly desired to just say, God, thank you. This is, this is how I know to say thank you. I, I deprive myself of some things, and I devote myself to worshiping you for a period. I just, this, you have done, you've sacrificed everything for me. Here, here's a little bit from me. And we would say, Paul, this is exactly right. Worship is what God desires from his people. Faithfulness. Paul's loving the Lord with all of his heart. And this is where we have to ask ourselves, are we doing the things that we are doing out of a heart that sincerely desires to worship God? Or are we holding on to some old ways of doing things because we think that it's given certain people this impression or it's earning us points here or there? Paul wrote in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's, that's what this is about. It's where your heart is. That, that's Paul. That's first scenario. Second, we turn our attention to a new guy, a man named Apollos. Look at uh, 1824. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And this is one of those few places where I think that the ESV, the translation that we use here, the English Standard Version, I think it could have done a better job. And that's because the word that's used for competent here, or the, the actual the word behind it, is the Greek word dunitas. And dunitas is closely related to the Greek word that, where we get the word dynamite from. And when you think of dynamite, you think of power. You think of explosive power. And so I think other translations get this a little better when they say Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. He's mighty 
in them. He's a man from the north shore of Egypt, from Alexandria. He had this powerful, this thorough, this well-understood knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. This is a man, not only that, he is passionate about God. He's well-versed in the things of God. He's able to teach others about God. This guy is a master. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. You think of Apollos, and you just think this guy on the outside looks amazing. You, you, this is the kind of guy that, that I would meet maybe at a conference or something like that, and i just go shrink way, way down. Like, wow, I should not be the one to speak. You speak. I got nothing. You got everything. That kind of thing. But Apollos had one shortcoming. It seemed that he didn't know that Jesus had died or rose from the dead. He spoke accurately concerning the things of Jesus, but he's missing something here. He only knew of the baptism of John. And you might be thinking, how could he not know that Jesus died and rose from the dead? Didn't everybody know by that time? And we're talking 20, 25 years after the fact here. We, we shouldn't forget that Acts, is not ri it, it's written in the first century AD. I mean, we don't have the technology that we have today. Uh, no cell phones, no internet blasting news out like lightning speed, no TVs, no, no radios. Paul and his fellow missionaries are out there, and they're delivering the good news of the gospel on foot. They're traveling around, bringing it to these places who had never heard the word, going from town to town. Is it possible that Apollos, that, that those in Alexandria had not yet heard? It's not only possible, it's likely. And so here he is. He's, he's going out. He wants to spread this good news. John's baptism, the Messiah that is, has come. This is incredible. And he's out there, and he's spreading this good news of the one that was foretold. He's here. Is he preaching the right stuff? Absolutely he is. Do you think he was a believer? Well, I think it's clear that God was at work inside of him, giving him faith to believe the, the, the content, the knowledge that he had, even though he didn't fully understand it. But here's a man, extremely proficient in the scriptures, who didn't have the full story. Is it possible to have a tremendous amount of knowledge and not have it all figured out? Yes. Is it possible to speak eloquently, to impress everyone, and not have the full story? Yes, it is. Is it possible to be incredibly charismatic to the point where people just, just gravitate towards you? The, 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 the zeal that you have is just contagious and not know the full story? Yes, it is. The question for Apollos is this. How's he going to receive the news? Will he receive the news when someone finally clues him in on it? You know, there was a time in my life where you couldn't tell me anything, especially my parents. I didn't want to hear anything from my parents. They'd say, uh, Jared, uh, we need to tell you. And I whip right back before they could finish the sentence, and I would say, I know, I know, I know, I, I know. Back off. 
right? <laughs> uh, my, my, my thought is that much of that Jared is, is put away, but the reality is some of that still, still remains. And you know what that is, don't you? That's pride. That is arrogance. That's me thinking that I got it all together or at least wanting everyone else to think that I got it all together. And that, my friends, that can be deadly. What we need to see about this man, Apollos, is that not only was he mighty in the scriptures, passionate, not only was he an eloquent speaker, this man was humble where it counted. Verse 26 he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Here he goes. Everyone is going, whoa. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is awesome when you think about it. You, you know, we don't know what kind of education Priscilla and Aquila had. There's a chance that they didn't have, that they weren't scholars. They're tent makers. Yes, Paul was a tent maker. He was also an, an incredibly knowledgeable, well-educated scholar. But we don't know anything about Priscilla and Aquila in that regard. One pastor wrote this. He said that the mighty preacher and scholar, talking about Apollos, Apollos would consent to be taught by a lowly tent maker and his wife attests to his godly humility. Friends, you and I might think that we know a thing or two about God, about Jesus, about this whole living in the kingdom of light thing. But it's so important that we hold loosely enough to our pride. That we're always ready to learn more about God's word even if it comes from the unlikeliest of places. Is your desire to know your Savior better? Is that your desire? Are you hungry for truth so much so that you're even willing to graciously be taken aside and informed of what you didn't know or didn't remember or maybe weren't communicating quite clearly or properly. You know, if Christ is our king and his glory is what we're really concerned about, we won't have any problem swallowing that humility pill, will we? For the sake of growing in our knowledge of him. Because we just want to know more. And to know anything about our God is to know we are not him. And we know that there is an endless amount more for us to know than what we already know. It's incredible. Verse 27 says this, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Apollos wants to come across the Aegean. When he arrived, he greatly helped those uh, greatly helped those through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. This man from Egypt, in, in, incredible. Here's a guy that I need to be more like. I need to be mightier in the scriptures. And so do you. 
And you and I need to be humble enough to drop our pride and learn from others. I have been in church long enough to know that part of the, the game that creeps into churches is for those who have been here a period of time to, because of their longevity, to feel like they need to keep their guard up so that no one else sees through the holes of their knowledge. I've been here long, I need to prove to everyone I've got this together. The same thing happens with baptism. Some people have been to church for so long that they, and they haven't, been, they haven't been baptized, and they go, I, I can't be baptized now. What will people think? I've been here so long. Our pride is creeping in. Or I'm having a problem in my marriage. I've been here at church for so long. No one can know about this because everyone looks up to me, and I've been even teaching this class here. I've been up on stage. They've prayed for me. I've prayed for other people. I've held this position, that position. I can't let my guard. We've got to drop. That is poison, not only to our church body, but it's poison to ourselves. Poison to ourselves. So here Apollos is, and he gets the blessing to leave Ephesus, travels across the Aegean to Corinth. And that brings us to our third scenario. So while Apollos goes across the sea, goes to Corinth, Paul now shows up in Ephesus. Remember, he was, we left him back at the church in Antioch. Guess what? He's on his third missionary journey now. Paul told the Ephesians what? Hey, if I, if I can get back to you, if the Lord wills, I'll come back to you. Guess what he's doing? He's coming back. First place he's going is Ephesus. Paul shows up in Ephesus, begins conversing with some of the Jews, most likely some of those who had conversed with Apollos. And verse 1 of chapter 19 says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, when we see that word disciples, our tendency is to think, these are Jesus' disciples. Shouldn't think that. Not automatically. Because the word disciple just simply means a student or a follower of anyone. And so you could have a disciple of Jesus, but you could also be a disciple of, of Gamaliel, or you could be a disciple of Robert or Frank or Bob or Lewis or whoever it is. In this case, they're disciples of John. Verse 2 says this, and he said to them, Paul says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And so they've already heard some of the message, right? Similar to Apollos. They had part of the story. At the very least, they had heard of the arrival of the Messiah. He, it was at least close at hand, if not he had already a lot, uh, arrived. They knew that just being a Jew by blood wasn't enough. They had to be a Jew by faith. And so John was saying, you got to repent. you got to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. You have to get serious about your relationship with God. So they, they knew that. But evidently, they did not either know about Jesus, were not well acquainted with his life or his teaching, not to mention his death and resurrection, and they certainly didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit by their own admission. And we have to ask ourselves, do we know Jesus? 
I don't mean, have you heard about Jesus, but do, do we actually know Jesus? There are a lot of people who think they know Jesus, right? They say that they believe in Jesus. They put the, the fish sticker on the back of their car. But then you begin to hear them talk. They begin to describe who Jesus is or what they believe Jesus would do. What would Jesus do, right? Remember those bracelets? And you go, wait a second. I don't think we're talking about the same Jesus here. When Paul discovered that whatever belief they were hanging on to was incomplete, he immediately leads them to the truth. And that, my friends, is exactly where we need to go as well. And so you may have had parents who claim to be Christian. You may have grown up in the church. You may have had all kinds of connections with the Christian community. You may have even watched a certain TV program where there's a Jesus character that walks around and everyone's watching it and thinks it's so cool. But unless you go to the source of God's word, what he has revealed to us, God himself has revealed to us truth, Unless you go there, you should not be certain that you know the real Jesus. And it's time to let go of what you think you know, or what you've heard other people tell you, and see for yourself who this Savior of the world actually is and what he has done. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who is come, to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when they heard about this Jesus that Paul was telling them about, it, it resonated deeply within. And not only did they listen, they believe. And when they believe, they're moved to go ahead and give the outward sign of the inward transformation that has taken place within them. They place their full trust in Jesus. Their sins are covered over by the blood that he shed for them on the cross. His resurrected life has now filled them. And so they want to go down into the water and be baptized just as Jesus commanded us to do. You know, we've talked about this. This is the first way that a Christian bears witness to what Christ has done. This is powerful. And so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The fullness of the gospel message, it was held up to what they, they thought they knew, and it brought light to exactly what they needed to bring them into Christ's kingdom. Verse 6 says this, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And that's where we land today. You know, there's, there's nothing magical about this laying on of hands thing. What Paul is actually doing here, he, he's just letting them know there, there is a relationship here now. There is a, something here that was not there before. You and I, we're now brothers in Christ. It's like 12, about 12, 12 men. There is a relationship between you and I. There is a relationship between you and Christ now. No longer are they kind of Christian. Kind of, with some knowledge. They're the real deal. 
And then the Holy Spirit does this incredible thing, which does not happen for every single believer, but he makes it crystal clear right there in Ephesus by moving within them, they start speaking in tongues and prophesying, just like on the day of Pentecost, and validate. You see this in Acts over and over again. God does this kind of supernatural conversion stuff at different points to make it clear Yes, the same work that began in Jerusalem at Pentecost, the same work is happening here in these people who are Gentiles. Are you stuck in your ways? Am I stuck in my ways? You know, it may not be an issue if we're talking about style. Some of us have it and some of us don't. You know, I just, I don't know what to say. Some of us know what color hair to wear and some of us don't, but... That may not matter. But when it comes to our beliefs, when it comes to our attitudes, and when it comes to our actions, every single one of our ways got to be held up and measured by the light of the gospel of Jesus. What does that reveal about your heart? Are you doing the things that you do out of sincere reverence and appreciation for the awesome work that Jesus Christ has accomplished in bringing you back from death to life. If it's not about his glory, then drop it and do something that is. And do you have the whole story? If I were to ask you right now who Jesus is and what he has done for you, would you be able to tell me or would there be some big holes? It, it, it's, um, it's a really kind of disturbing experience that I've had over the years, especially in working with students, students who've been in the youth group for so long, and then they want to be baptized or, or, or something like that. We sit down, and we have this conversation. I ask them, can you just tell me, what, what, do you, what did Jesus do? For, who's Jesus? What did he do for you? And they go, uh. You know, I thought that was a thing with students, but then I came to senior pastor ministry and I started sitting down with adults more and more and I got the same, uh... Friends, we need to know who Jesus is. Not just from a TV show. Not just from our parents. Not from some quote-unquote Christian author who has a certain particular view. I think Jesus was like a grandmother here. He's like this over here. Like this lady hanging out in the shack. Friends, we need to know who Jesus is from his word. You know, if we don't, it's possible. Could it be possible that some of us don't, aren't even really within the walls of God's kingdom? Could it be that you're not even really part of God's family? I can think of no greater tragedy than for someone to think that they had it only to reach their, the end and realize I missed something. Following the wrong person. Following the wrong Jesus. Let me tell you, it's worth dropping your pride to find out. And it's worth spending some serious time searching God's word and making sure that you know who this Jesus actually is and that you are without a doubt his child. 
We're coming to the Lord's table this morning. And as we do, we are confessing our need for Jesus Christ. With those who are serving communion, would you come on down with me? Just before his death, Jesus is with his disciples. He's lounging about the table. They're breaking bread. There's wine there. There's food there. He wants them to have a concrete picture of what it means to trust in him, what it means to rely on him. And so we come to this table and we see, we take first this little piece of cracker, this unleavened bread, and we remember Jesus saying to his disciples, this is my body given for you. And we go, oh, yes, my body is not enough. Older I get, the reali- I realize more and more that's the case with mine. It's not enough. It's falling apart. I need Jesus. And even if I gave this thing up and said, Lord, here's, here's my body, you know, all right, forgive me of my sins, he'd go, no, 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 it's not enough. You need Jesus. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. He took the, the cup. This cup is the, represents the new covenant of my blood. Your salvation, your ability to be washed clean and forgiven and made right with your God, it is dependent on not your own blood because your blood is tainted by your own sin. It is dependent on the precious blood of Jesus, the perfect blood, the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. Take that in remembrance of me. And we take it knowing that this is what seals the deal. It's not about keeping any traditions. It's not about raising my hands. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone. And so anything and everything that I do from this point needs to be praise Jesus. Amen? I want to invite you just for a moment. Let's just close our eyes. Let's just bow our heads. Let's prepare our hearts to take the bread and the juice this morning. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your provision. You, you knew from the beginning of creation that we were going to fall. You made a way through Christ. Christ willingly obeyed, willingly gave up his body. And that's why we take this cracker today as a reminder that we do regularly to be reminded that it is not us. It is all you, and we want you, and we want us to be lowered lower down than you in our desires. We want you for our all in all. Thank you, God Almighty. Amen.